Welcome, everyone. It's so good to see you. God's doing great and mighty things. Amen. We, we are we're part of a we're part of an ongoing adventure in the kingdom of God. And today, when we go right back to the very heart of the gospel, it is such a joy to be able to open together God's word and just be reminded that as simply as the Apostle Paul said it in Galatians 2, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I live now in this physical frame, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, I want to invite you to open your Bible, whichever Bible you use, that you're used to, because I'll ask you to turn to two or three places here today. Open to the 20th chapter of the Gospel of John. Last week, we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus. And when we read this morning in the book of Acts, the plan that he had to appear to witnesses chosen for the purpose of making known his eternal glory, it carried the significance of the God-man into their lives in a way that directly impacts what we're going to talk about today. I want to look together with you at a great theme in the Gospel of John, and then to contrast it with one of the big challenges of our lives, which is how do I deal with my doubts? Now certainly, on every level of life, what we believe and how we believe it and why we believe it is absolutely crucial. But nowhere is it more significant than when it comes to the matter of our eternal destinies. The end of this 20th chapter, if your Bible is open at John 20, this last verse of the chapter, I'll ask you to read a phrase from the screen with me, capsulizes a major theme in the Gospel of John that we want to look at together today. And in one phrase, as the writer is about to put down that quill after the magnificent manuscript of the first 20 chapters that has come from the Holy Spirit's gift and infusion, as we saw in our series on the Open Bible Workshop, the Holy Spirit breathing into Scripture the eternal Word of God. And at the conclusion of that 20th chapter, before the wonderful and just amazing epilogue of chapter 21, the writer says, there are so many other things that we could have chosen from to put into print. And yet these are written, these selected among the many mighty miracles that Jesus did. Verse 31, these have been written so that you may believe. And if you just read aloud that last phrase from the screen with me, that by believing you will have life through his name. Let's read it aloud again. By believing, you will have life through his name. This life is nothing less than the life that Jesus gives in conquest over hell, death, and the grave, in which every aspect of his risen glory, the resurrected body of our Lord and Savior Jesus, 
as he displays what that means, we see that God is giving us the same quality of life. What remains is in the body for that to be made known, but the scripture is clear that when we give our hearts to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and ask Christ to come into your heart, this quality of life, this quality of living, this dynamic, powerful work of God's grace by which he raised Jesus from the dead is now dwelling in the hearts and lives of real, ordinary, common sinners who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus and brought into the family of God. In other words, when we start to talk about what it means to have a living, daily, active relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, we're tapping into nothing less than the resurrection life of God. Now, this truth is accented in many ways throughout the New Testament, and one, we'll look at a couple of examples, but one is in the second chapter of the book of Acts, when Simon Peter on the day of Pentecost is explaining uh, the unprecedented miracle of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit by which tongues of fire sat upon those that were assembled at that time of the t after the ten days of waiting for the promise of the Father and the Holy Spirit's presence through those mighty miracles of the day of Pentecost were so captivating that crowds gathered in anticipation and in awe of what was taking place. Peter's message is lengthy, delving into the fulfillment of the great promises of God in Scripture, and then it comes to an apex where Peter explains that the reason you can know in your heart that you can not only have forgiveness of sin, as wonderful as that is, but also new life, a new birth, the life of God on a different dimension than humans know it in their natural habitat. That is God doing something in the heart of every single individual to make him or her a child of God, and for you to know, for each child of God to know, that dwelling within is the very resurrection life of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is clear from Acts 2.42 that at Acts 2.24 that Peter wanted it to be crystal clear. The reason we need to know this is that God raised Jesus from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. In the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, there is an invincible power by which Jesus in resurrection glory could not be apprehended by death, could not be constrained by death, literally overpowered the very death that he had chosen to die. As we know and as we saw last week when the Lord Jesus said, uh, no man takes my life from me, I lay it down of my own accord that I may raise it up, that the Father may raise my body. And in that wonderful 
synergy of truth, Jesus brings the life of God on the scene. As we think about that, then we can understand why in the epistles of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul drew from this fact, the invincible, overpowering conquest of Christ over hell, death, and the grave, to anchor your faith not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul explained it in 1 Corinthians when he said, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ crucified and risen again. That was a summary of the vast truths of how not only can a heart be reconciled to God, not only can the sins that imprison and poison and hinder and thwart the human heart, not only can they be cleansed and forgiven and and washed away by the precious blood of Jesus, but there is an infusion of life. There is the giving of the very life of God. Really, we could say that justification is trusting in Christ for the position of being forgiven and standing in right standing with God. And sanctification is the working of the Holy Spirit that brings that resurrection life into practical application in our lives. And Paul the Apostle was exhorting believers to that high calling of living with an awareness that you are living now with Christ dwelling in you. When he wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords who alone is immortal and lives in unapproachable light. These facts become anchored in the reality of what it means to be a born-again child of God, to be someone who is found in Christ the wonderful facts of what it means to belong to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, the reason that all of these facts together are so vital for us today is that of all the things that we might doubt, and many things in this world we legitimately doubt, there is a foundation in faith that can become a part of the way that we process our life challenges and the information that comes into our hearts and into our lives. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, the Apostle Paul said this good news, all of this good news about the risen Lord, is come to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This living reality that you can know the living one, the risen one, was at the heart of the, of the um, themes that the, the gospel writer John gave us to explain why the events in John 20 were so crucial for, an, for curing that nagging doubt inside of the soul. Now, it's pretty interesting to think about it like this, that what is really at stake in John chapter 20 is, can be stated so simply that it touches every arena of our lives. Again, the very simple phrase is this. These things have been written that 
you may believe in him. And the repeated theme of believing in 21 chapters of the Gospel of John, the key verb in the Greek text is the verb to believe, pistuo, and it occurs either in the verb or noun form 98 times in 21 chapters. From, from John 1.12, where, where we read, He came unto his own, and his received him not, but to as many as received him, to those who believed in his name. To them he gave the right to become the children of God, born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. But literally, John 1.13 says, by receiving and believing in Jesus, that the child of God is born of God. John 1.13, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. And how can, the, how can a person know that when we look at ourselves and we see our frailty and our fragility and we see our failure, failures and we see how, how uh, in ourselves how helpless we are? What magnifies the new birth is the simple fact of Jesus Christ crucified, buried for us, risen again, glorified, and showing the disciples in that 20th chapter his glorified body. In other words, the God-man who was not man before being conceived in the virgin womb of the virgin, but became human. As Philippians 2, 6 says, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of man, being found in fashion as a He humbled himself to become obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, whereby God also is highly exalted him, the God-man, the man Christ Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus in his exaltation is not Jesus just returning to the Father in the same way that he was from eternity. No, it is the eternal second person of the Trinity who has now become man, lived that sinless life, performed the miracles that indicated and reflected his deity, laid aside all the prerogatives of deity, but moved in the power of the Holy Spirit as the God-man. And in his atoning death on the cross for us and in the resurrection, now in glory, he continues to be the eternal, exalted God-man. Death could not keep its grip on him. And the good news of the gospel, telling us how he shed his blood, is to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Yes, we're to know and realize he is alive. It is the good news of Easter morning. It is the good news of the glory of his resurrection that the very face of Jesus Christ is highlighted here in this text. Why? Because the believing that the Gospel of John talks about is letting the truth of who Christ is become real in the very depths of the human heart so that in the most 
recognizable phrase of, of, of all time concerning this. We hear those words in John 3.16. Say them in that last quote there on the screen with me. So that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Everlasting life. This is not only the theme in terms of a, of a key word of the Gospel of John, but it's also a theme in the sense of how the Gospel of John, I think of it like, in a way like a symphony, in a symphony orchestra, where there is a, there's a progressive um, building up of the, of the theme of a symphony until a movement of music moves toward a crescendo, and the amazing thing is with your Bible open in John 20 is that all through the Gospel of John, the call to believe and the Lord's revelation of himself as the I am, the promised one, reaches a, a crescendo in a most unexpected way. I want to show it to you in your own Bible. Look at John chapter 20. And notice with me verse 19. Now, I hope you still have your Bible open. And you see, as we trace these other verses of Scripture, uh, I, I hope you might think for a moment, why do these verses we read say, the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? Why do they say the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and dwells in unapproachable light? Because what we're about to read in John 20, 19, is the Lord Jesus letting these disciples know why it matters that the God-man became the Lamb of God to take away our sin and in resurrection glory brings the resurrection life of God into the very heart of the gospel. And here's why. John 20, verse 19. I hope you have it in your Bible and and would follow along with me. In John 20, verse 19, the Bible says, When it was evening, on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst of them and said, Peace be with you. And as soon as he spoke, the shalom to that gathering of disciples in that upper room, the Bible says, when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, by this point, we can pause the reading there and think, there is no doubt at all that this is, in the post-resurrection glory of the Lord Jesus, this is what we would call the giving of the new birth. For before he had been raised from the dead, the disciples believed in him, and yet that atoning work had not yet been accomplished. It's not until the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, that now the gift of salvation and new birth can be offered to every soul. That's why the Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if you shall confess with your mouth 
the Lord Jesus. And what? Shall believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. You shall be saved. At the very moment in which Jesus is giving this so clearly in resurrection glory, passing through the locked doors to be physically present, but in that glorified and exalted body where Acts chapter 1 verse 2 says, he showed himself alive by many infallible proofs as he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know about you, but every time I come to this time period in the Gospels, this 40 days after the resurrection until his ascension, uh, I, I'm always so intrigued to want to know more, don't you? You want to know more. What were these appearances like? And as we've already seen at the end of chapter 20, the, the, the gospel writer and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit has told us why we need these, these samplings of these immediate appearances. And the one I'm showing you now is unique in a couple of ways. One is, it's obviously the commissioning of the apostles. But the other is that of the 11 remaining, of the 11 apostles, one is not there. So sometimes in your Bible translations, you'll see the word the 11 with a capital E because it refers to them as a, as a group after Judas Iscariot betrayed the Lord and they became then, the, de the definition morphed into the 11. Say the 11. Now say the 11 minus one. Okay, because, as, as, as we see here, that what, what takes place here in this event is that Jesus has now appeared to Mary Magdalene. He has, he has made his glory known to a grief-stricken and devoted woman who then after meeting him, thinking he was the gardener, but hearing his voice and saying, Rabboni, and the Lord saying, don't cling to me now, Mary. You don't need to cling to me. It isn't by your power of gripping or grasping that you can have this wonderful life. No, I'm here. It's as if he was saying, the work is done. I'm alive. I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, and to my God and to your God. In that very expression in, in John 20, Jesus was letting Mary know the new birth era has now blossomed into mighty power. And the living resurrection life of God is now available to your heart. And Mary goes running off in obedience to tell the disciples. And Peter and John have made their run to the tomb that morning. And when they get to the tomb, John pauses outside of the tomb at first, and then Peter races past him and goes in and sees not just the empty tomb, but additional evidence, the evidence of those grave clothes that had someone stolen the body, they would not have left the grave clothes behind. Had someone tried to come and tamper with a corpse, Certainly, they would have grabbed it and run. But no, what does Peter see? And then John comes in and Bible says and sees and believes the, the, very, the very grave linens 
that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had, had tenderly wrapped around the body of the Lord Jesus with that Aramaic and gooey resin that they used in order to make the, uh, the aroma as strong as possible for the spices of preserving the body as long as possible. And the entire, the entire chrysalis, if you will, of those grave clothes is now left on the ledge with that headpiece folded aside and both the evidence of the empty tomb itself and the evidence of these wrappings out of which the exalted glorified body of Jesus has emerged clearly witnesses to John that the Lord is alive he could not have even comprehended what how that could happen what could this all mean all of those times Jesus had told them that he would be crucified and that he would die and that he would raise it, be raised on the third day. All of those things they had not assimilated into their rational minds thinking of it literally. And now John sees it is literally true. He is alive. If you look in your Bible, in fact, at, at that point, go in your Bible on John chapter 20 and go back to that uh, eighth verse after they face cloth they'd seen on the head of the Lord Jesus lying with the linen wrappings but rolled up in a place by itself, verse 7. And then look at John 20, verse 8. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and what does it say about John here? He saw and believed. Now this is near the crescendo, and yet what is so striking and unexpected is not only is Peter and John have Peter and John found the, the, the unmistakable evidence, the silent witnesses to the mighty power of the resurrection, an empty tomb, and these evacuated grave clothes. But now, not only has Mary turned to the voice in the garden thinking it was the gardener and weeping and saying, you place the body of my Lord, and then hearing that voice that she could never forget, and saying Rabboni, and then running with that news that the Lord is alive. And then the 11, minus 1, having that meeting with Jesus. And then we have verse 24. And would you look in your Bible at John 20, 24. But Thomas, one of the 12, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came among them. One of them was not with the disciples when Jesus came among them. We don't know where Thomas was but on that first Sunday evening, but the remarkable selectivity of the Holy Spirit in, in assembling these wondrous encounters as the 31st verse tells us, we're specifically so that you may believe. That in every individual heart, we could see that Jesus understands our doubts. And the man often referred to in common conversation as Doubting Thomas is given kind of an unfair label in history. Because actually, I want to show you there's an amazing legacy of this guy, 
singled out as the doubter. And what is remarkable here is the crescendo of the symphony of the gospel comes to the very place that many of us most need the touch of Christ in our life. And, and where would that be? Well, I think most of us, if we're honest, would say that what we need in our hearts and our lives is a resilient, triumphant, solid, unshakable faith in the true and living God. And it is nothing less than the design of our Savior to give us not only these wondrous appearances and the discoveries of the apostles that his body is gone and that he's evacuated those grave clothes like a butterfly would come out of a chrysalis. Not only that, but that in the giving of these facts, in the giving of the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus, he knows your doubts. He knows our innermost needs. And he chooses Thomas as the story to cap off the entire, the entire ascending invitation for all of us to become truly believers. See, in other words, what I really believe here is that the Thomas story shows us how the good news of the gospel moves from the fragile faith of a shaken soul, which I think in this congregation today, there could be many people, if we're honest, who would say there have been times in my life where my faith was shaken and my soul was shattered. How many of you could say, There's, I can think of a time when my faith was shaken and my soul was shattered? Now I want to tell you, one way I think of John 20 is the closest of all miracles, because here's the miracle that is not only revolutionary in the cosmic sense that Christ has been raised from the dead and spoiled principalities and powers and made an open show of them triumphing over them by the cross. Not only is this great story redemptively real, because we read that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but freely God has sent his redemption through the blood of his Son that we may have a forgiveness that no human can ever take away. All of those things are true. And then on top of that is the fact that when your soul has been shattered, when you found yourself in a shaken place, when you found yourself on the edge of some despair, you can remember, you can know, you can believe that Jesus chose of all people the one to conclude the great panorama of resurrection appearances, Thomas. Thomas, the one who said, well, let's see what he said in verse 25. He said, when they said to Thomas, we've seen the Lord after that first Sunday night, when Jesus had come into that locked room and passed through the walls and breathed upon them and, and said, receive ye the Holy Spirit. No doubt that was their new birth. Now Thomas, who was not there, utters understandable words. <laughs> All of us can understand Thomas. He said to them, unless I see 
in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into the side, he says, I will not believe. Now, the sheer vocalizing of that caused some people to think of Thomas as stubbornly unbelieving. But actually, what Thomas is reflecting here is the shock and the shattered experience of a, of a disciple who has seen his beloved Messiah, the Lord, the mighty miracle worker, ripped away in injustice, crucified and dead and buried under a trumped up series of charges by the Roman authorities. And he is in a place where he's now saying, my faith needs to be joined with the confirmation of God. I need to understand what this is all about. Because Thomas is giving us an understanding here that Jesus has done something tangibly verifiable. Now we're going to see that the, that the far greater blessing is to those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus is going to say that. But not for one moment does Jesus rebuke Thomas. Let's continue in the text. He's showing Thomas the substance of an intangible hope. And in verse 26, we read, John 20, 26. I hope you have that in your Bible. After eight days, his disciples were again inside. And Thomas with them, and Jesus came, and the doors having been shut, and he stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving but believing. Now, Jesus had granted uh, his immediate presence to all of these 11, counting Thomas, but he also goes further and grants to Thomas the very proof that Thomas was yearning for. And, and yet, the purpose of his revealing this was for it to always be crystal clear, for it to always be known, and that there would never be any doubt about why the God-man had to enter into eternity with a glorified body. Thomas's question becomes the fulcrum of leaping into a wonderful truth when he showed them his hands and his side. I could summarize it this way by saying that in his risen glory, think of it, the full humanity of the risen Son of God continues in eternity. That's why on the island of Patmos, later the same writer of this gospel, John the Beloved, in his latter years, the longest surviving apostle as far as is known for sure chronologically. And John is, is in a place of confinement on that windswept, black rock, lava-looking kind of wilderness of an island off the coast of Greece called Patmos. And when John meets the Lord in his risen glory, when the Lord Jesus enters the sphere of the natural realm to show John 
that the Lamb who has triumphed in eternal glory reigns upon his throne. The Bible says that John fell at his feet as one dead, totally terrified by the immediate magnitude of the presence of Jesus. And the Lord says to him in Revelation 1.17, Do not be afraid, John, for I am he that liveth and was dead. But behold, I am alive forevermore, and I hold the keys of Hades and of death. And at that moment, John, meeting the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the risen one, again in his eternal splendor, is the vessel Jesus chooses to bring his final written word to the world. Bearing that in mind, then we can understand why 1 Timothy 2 verse 5 says, this truth needed to be known for all people to, be, to know about the promise of salvation because there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 2.5 is emphasizing the full deity of our Lord and Savior Jesus continues with his eternal glorified humanity. And why would that be good for people like Thomas and like us? Why do we need to know that? Well, certainly one reason is because it's a foreshadowing of the coming promise that God has said his redemptive plan involves the whole being, spirit, soul, and body. It's why the message of the resurrection is at the heart. Easter glory is at the very heart of the good news. Why? Because in Christ, the heart that belongs to Jesus is made new with the resurrection life of God. And the Bible says Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man, the God-man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ. Can you say this aloud with me together today? That in Christ all will be made alive. Could you say that? In Christ all will be made alive. All will be made alive, even including the resurrection of the body. That's why a classic um, creed of repeated thousands and thousands and thousands of times by Christians all over the world, the Apostles' Creed accents that very fact, as well as the Nicene Creed and all of the great summaries of, of truth that uh, have endured the test of time throughout the centuries, that God raised His Son from the dead, that eternal life is more than just our heavenly home. It is that. We saw that last week. But it is also God's promise that He is Lord of all. The eternal reign, the eternal lordship of Jesus. Now I think this kind of gives us a, a good reason to think maybe about what kind of legacy Thomas the Doubter leaves us? Now, and, as I, and as we think about this, could just consider that today you and I could go out of here and we could be like Thomas, we could be what I would call a delivered doubter. <laughs> you say, what in the world is that, Pastor? A delivered doubter. Well, one thing I know for sure is that there's not a person in this place today that has not had some point of time in your life that you found yourself 
wavering, wondering, wandering, feeling somewhat ill at ease about some aspect of your confidence in God. And all through the scripture as we're told that trust in God grows as it is nurtured on the revealed truth of scripture, but God blesses that revealed truth of scripture with time and time again the, what I call the honey from heaven, where he brings the sweetness of a new discovery into your soul and all of us in some way can identify with Thomas. So what could we take home about Thomas? Well, first, he had a loyal legacy. Thomas was not uh, some stubborn resistor here. Thomas is a living object lesson that God cares about the deepest questions in your heart. The, the loyalty he showed in John 11 was when, when the Jews had tried to form a conspiracy to kill Jesus, and Jesus had temporarily delayed his trip back to the home of Mary and Martha because Lazarus' death was going to be the occasion of a mighty demonstrative miracle, as we talked about briefly last week. And yet the disciples, for all they knew, they were walking into a trap. And they began to wonder, would, should Jesus even go that way? The, the Jews have spoken of killing him. Should he head back over toward Bethany? And, and it, was, it was you who was it that spoke up in loyalty to say, let's go even if we die with our master. You know who that was? Fill in the blank for me, Thomas. Thomas is with Jesus in the upper room that night when Jesus is beginning to explain that because the Holy Spirit will come and guide you, that you can trust in this coming promised one, that even when I'm away, it'll be better for you. I've read that many times, and I'm sure you have, and we've thought, how could it be better? It be, seems to me it'd be better if Jesus just stayed right here. How many of you would have thought that way? And yet Jesus said it again and again in John 14. It's expedient for you. It's better for you that I go away. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And Thomas is the one who leans in in John 14, 5 and says, Lord, please illuminate this for us more. We don't even know the way you're going, nor would we know even how to follow you. And it is the question of Thomas. It's the inquiry of this yearning Disciple who leads Jesus to bring forth the seventh of the great I am's. Oh, Thomas, I am the way. Thomas says, where will we find the way? What does he say? I am the way. I, Thomas, am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but personally through me. So, so not only has Thomas got a loyal legacy and a, and a, a listener's legacy, he's got a laser-like inquiry here when he says, I, 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 need to, I need to touch, I need to see. And then here's, here's the most wonderful thing of all. Thomas's example of being the object lesson of, of Christ. Glory coming directly to the very hearts of his redeemed is completed by this wonderful benediction. And here's the benediction. The Greek text in John 20, verse 29, says, Because you've seen me, 
you have believed. New American Standard uses the question mark there, ESV, the Net Bible. And one of the reasons is that in the Greek, there are no punctuation marks of period versus question mark, but it's determined by context. And the verb can be indicative or interrogative, simply meaning that he could have said, Thomas, you've believed and seen, now blessed are those. But most appears from the text that it's a question. So you believe because you see? Huh. Well, good for you. And remember, he never rebuked Thomas. He never, he never once uttered a word of correction to Thomas. But what he did was he showed Thomas that that level of tangible confirmation, though a gift from God, only serves to highlight this for you and me. And that is that faith in Jesus for those who've not seen him with their natural eyes is of a far greater blessing. You see, the Bible sometimes uses um, remarkable encounters in Scripture to magnify something that's even better. Do you know the, the cloud by day and the fire by night that the Israelites experienced and led them from place to place? Now, some people would imagine that might be the best way to be led. If I could see that, I'd just say, okay, I'm going to get in the car and I'm going to follow the cloud, right? But the Lord uses that to accent what is better. And what is better is what we saw in John 14. It is better for you that I go away. Why? Because the presence of the Holy Spirit is immeasurably better than a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Do you believe that? But for Jesus to help us see the intangible, for him to help Thomas see, Thomas, I'm granting your request. Come here, touch, come on, touch me, Thomas. Put your hand, put your hand right there in that wound. Put it right here in this room, wound of this wrist. Go ahead, Thomas, touch it. He doesn't rebuke him. But... What he says is, this is nothing compared to the blessing of those who have not seen and yet believe. Would you give me one more minute and would you turn your Bible to 1 Peter 1? I want us to go out the door with this verse ringing in our ears because it perfectly summarizes the deliverance of a doubter. The deliverance of a doubter not being condemned but being shown something so far superlative that can only come because of the resurrection life of our living Savior. 1 Peter 1, verse 8, right after telling us what we read about six weeks ago about the, the, the positive purpose of testing. Then verse 8, if you could find it in your Bible, at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. The text says, through him, though you have not seen him, you love him. Could you say it aloud with me? Though not seeing him, we love him. Now, once again, would you say, not seeing, I love him. And though he says, you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. That, that glory we saw that he says is in the face of Jesus Christ is because our risen, exalted, glorified Savior has promised 
Yes, I am with you. And this resurrection life dwells in the heart of the child of God. This resurrection life simply means you can say, in Christ, we are new creatures, a new species, a new creation. The living resurrection glory of our King means to receive him into your heart means you've been made a new creature. Now, as we pray, I, I know there could be somebody here that that might not be that vividly clear to you. You might have heard everything I said, and, and it still kind of lingers in your brain. Well, I'm not quite exactly sure if I've actually asked Christ to come into my heart. And we know that in the journey of growing in our faith, there are times where we, we feel that that complete uh, shattering that we talked about earlier. And you may come to a point where you say, I need to just verify and, and connect and confirm and, and have prayer privately with someone to share the word of God with me and to, 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 that I leave this day with an unmistakable assurance in my soul. And then for everyone who has that assurance, oh, what I would most yearn for right now is we stand together and I'd invite you to go ahead and stand as they're about to lead us in this song, that we could just take a moment and maybe in your own heart, in your own heart, give a thanks to the Lord that he used Thomas, this unlikely object lesson, <laughs> to help us see that believing him, that walking by faith and knowing your risen Lord is alive, that there's actually a blessing upon you that far exceeds the one who got to physically put a finger in the wound of the risen Lord. Oh God, we can't fully grasp that, but we pray today that faith will explode into new bursts of, of understanding, that the blossoming of the faith of your people will, will again be seen not, not as something that is a struggle, but is the response of the Holy Spirit working in the heart of a child of God who had read the word and heard the good news that this Jesus who was crucified is raised victorious over hell, death, and the grave because death could not keep its hold on him. And then just one last part of the prayer for you is said death couldn't keep his hold on him, its hold on him. My friend, you could be here today and there's something where the enemy is trying to put a, a, a stranglehold on your on your innermost joy and you're you're sensing it's almost like that death grip something pulls me back to to a, a place of despair a place of, of perplexity a place of resentment a place of hurt remember you can trust in the resurrection life of jesus working mightily in you oh god we thank you for that today we thank you that we can say with the apostle paul the life i live by faith I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen.